This is episode number 87, How to Win at Negotiation Every Time with Chris Voss. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The secret to gaining the upper hand that a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. So whatever negotiation you're in, you want to let the other person feel like they're in control. They're going to relax. They're going to drop their guard. You want to hear them out because people start to feel in control as soon as you hear them out. Now, the great trick about hearing somebody out is there's a really good chance they're going to suggest something you want. And another phrase that I like a lot is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. I'm so thankful that you guys are here and I'm really excited that we are in a new year and this podcast is taking off like a rocket. Thank you so much for your support and also thank you for your support on Patreon where people are financially contributing to my work. Just a couple bucks a month makes a big difference and it's patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. Another fun thing we're doing with Patreon is that people are able to write in questions and get advanced notice of who the guests are. So that's been really fun to interact with all the patrons that way. I really appreciate that you guys are here. I love all the feedback I've been receiving for the show and I'm glad that it's really bringing a lot of value to you guys. Now today's episode is something that will definitely strike a chord with every single person. Each one of us has had to negotiate in some way, whether it be for our house, for a car, for a job, negotiating with a family member, with our spouse, having the tools and knowing what to do and what the rules are of negotiation are massively important. But you don't just become a master negotiator. Negotiation is a skill and something we can all practice. I was never particularly interested in the mechanics of negotiation until my entire income became based on how well I could negotiate. This happened about five or six years ago when I quit my job and I negotiate all my sponsorships, all my speaking fees, all my writing fees, gosh, all my other side projects I do with tourism boards. So learning how to negotiate has been a learning experience for sure with a lot of trial and error and has been great to find resources like this book we're going to talk about in the podcast today. I used to get super nervous about negotiations, but now I actually really have come to enjoy them. And it's because I would be so tied to the outcome and I'd be so worried about the outcome instead of trying to really listen to the person and hear them out and create value. I've read a lot of books on negotiation, but my favorite one is called Never Split the Difference. The book is written by a brilliant man named Chris Voss. Chris Voss is the FBI's former lead international kidnapping negotiator, so the book is quite interesting. When he negotiated, people's lives were on the line. In addition to being an author and a former FBI negotiator, Chris regularly lectures on negotiation and is the CEO of Black Swan Group. He has spoken at business schools across the country and has also been seen on ABC, CBS, CNN, Forbes, and more. In his book, he wrote about anecdotes from his career, some fascinating stories and situations that were challenging whenever he was negotiating for hostages' lives, the tools he used in order to be successful and how it can be applied to any situation. There are some very direct and easy to implement strategies you can start using immediately after listening to this show. I strongly encourage you guys to read the book because this episode will be a great supplement to the information presented. The way Chris negotiates is all about listening, knowing how and what questions to ask, creating value for both parties, and even how to tell if someone is lying. He also tells us the one question you can ask to get someone to respond to your email and how to get out of a speeding ticket. There's a lot of awesome stuff in this podcast and I think you guys are gonna really enjoy listening to Chris. Before we get into it, I wanted to invite you guys to my newsletter. So go to sonyalooney.com and a formal pop-up and I send out a bi-weekly email newsletter. And hey, if you don't like it, you can always unsubscribe. But the newsletter is straight into the point, providing valuable how-to information across the topics covered in this podcast. I'm also going to be launching a wellness challenge any day now. So if you want to make sure that you're in on that, make sure you're in on the newsletter as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, take a screenshot and share it with your friends on social media and also tell them about the book, Never Split the Difference. I highly recommend checking it out. 
And as you'll hear Chris say, it's the cheapest and easiest to get off Amazon. So go to Amazon and pick up his book. So here is Chris Voss. This was a great review for me and something that's going to be really actionable immediately after listening to this show for you. Hope you enjoy it. Chris Voss, welcome to the show. Sonia, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you're a pretty impressive person as the former FBI lead kidnapping negotiator. Well, thank you. It was, it was something I was lucky to have done. How did you get into that? I was originally on a SWAT team. I was an FBI agent. I was on a SWAT team. Stuff like that are additional duties. You can be on a SWAT team. You can be a negotiator. You can be an undercover. You can be a bomb tech. They're all kind of different breeds of cats. And I had a recurring knee injury, and I decided before I completely tore my knee up to try hostage negotiation. It didn't sound that hard. <laughs> and it turned out to be just like better than anything I ever expected. It was really cool. And had you been somebody that really enjoyed negotiating in other areas of your life growing up and in other things? I do remember when I was a cop being sort of blown away by police officers who could get stuff done just with their spoken word when other police officers were struggling, trying to force people to do stuff. And so I remember really being blown away by it, thinking that was really cool. Awesome. How did you learn how to do this? Because the stakes are pretty high when it's hostage negotiation. It's people's lives. Well, you know, you learn a good process from people that know what they're doing. I mean, first when I wanted to become a negotiator, I got rejected. I went to the uh, woman who was in charge of the negotiation team in New York City and sort of presented myself with kind of like, ta-da. And she was just underwhelmed. Like she said, you got any experience, credentials, background, anything? I said, no. And she said, go away. <laughs> and I said, come on now, there's got to be something I could do. And she said, yeah, there is. Go volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now, until you've done that, stop bothering me. So uh, I went volunteered on the hotline and studied it. You know, I went, I went there to learn as opposed to help, which might sound odd, but when you're there to learn, I mean, you don't get frustrated as fast. And so then when I finally got to the course of Quantico to learn and I started playing tapes for us of hostage negotiations, I remember saying to myself, I've been doing this for two years. I just didn't have a SWAT team outside. So, and then they had a great process and great teachers and you learn the process and you know, you can't be perfect and then you just go for it. So whenever you're in these really tense situations, how do you manage the stress of it? Because I'm sure that you have rushes of cortisol and your heart rate increases and it's also your voice on the phone as well. So how do you manage the emotion part of it? You know, kind of the crazy thing in a hostage negotiation or even in a business negotiation, as soon as you start really focusing on figuring out what's bothering the other side, it actually kind of gets you out of your own head. You sort of forget all about your own emotions. I mean, really good intent, in-depth, curious listening, if you will, has a tendency to shut your own emotions out of the way. They don't get in your way. Interesting. And in your book, you talk about tactical empathy. So how do you have empathy for people who are kidnapping and threatening to kill people? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, all right, so let's not call empathy sympathy. I mean, most of the time, the way it's being used, you know, empathy is sympathy only. And, and that's really, that's not helpful. I mean, because then we can only have empathy for people that we agree with. Daniel Goleman calls it cognitive empathy. He says there's three kinds of empathy. What we call tactical empathy, Goleman calls cognitive empathy. And it's just understanding where the other side's coming from. If, if that's all it is, you can understand where anybody's coming from. And we had to start with that approach because we had to figure by definition we were going to be against whoever we were talking to. And if it required agreement, then we wouldn't be able to talk to them. Yeah, because your book is Never Split the Difference. It's not meeting somebody halfway. Exactly. Yeah, never split the difference. I mean, as a hostage negotiator, I wanted to get, not only did I want to get everything, I wanted to have a great relationship with the bad guy on the other end of the line, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times they're asking for money and you give a lot of different scenarios and examples in your book and stories that you've been through. But if you're not going to be able to give them the money, how do you get them to give you the hostage? 
Well, and, and so there's a couple different types of hostage negotiations, if you will. There's one where the guy's inside the bank and we got them surrounded and we're given nothing for that other than we're going to make them feel better. And it's shocking how much you can actually get in any deal just by making the other side feel better. I mean, you can get so much in any deal that we give that first because I might not have to give you any money. And that was a bank robbery hostage negotiation. Now, kidnapping, international kidnapping, on the other hand, is straight bare knuckle bargain where you're trying to get the lowest price. And the reason why you're giving money in a kidnapping is you're running like a sting operation or even like uh, the re same reason bank tellers have bait money. Bad guy comes in to rob the bank. The bank teller gives a little bit of money to get the bank robber out of there and also to save the teller's life. And the money becomes evidence so that if the bad way, you get evidence of the crime with them. Kidnapping is internationally pretty much the same thing. We'll give them a little bit of money to get the hostage out. You don't want to give them a lot. And you want to catch them on down the line with that money and handing it out to the people that are conspiring with them. So a kidnapping is a commodity negotiation. A commodity is people. But you just got to deal with that. That's the way it is. So whenever you're getting started, there's a framework I'm sure that you follow every time. And in your book, you outline a lot of different questions you can ask in certain ways. So how do you like, where do you start? So if somebody's going to be negotiating, maybe it's like a car, a house, maybe they're trying to negotiate with their teenager to do something like where to even start? You know, the secret to gaining the upper hand that a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. So whatever negotiation you're in, you want to let the other person feel like they're kind of like they're in control. They're going to relax. They're going to drop their guard. You want to hear them out because people start to feel in control as soon as you hear them out. Now, the great trick about hearing somebody out is there's a really good chance they're going to suggest something you want. And another phrase that I like a lot is negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. Well, how do I let them have my way? I got to get them talking and let them talk themselves into my way. Yeah. And I think something really interesting and really hard for a lot of people to do is to allow for that silence. That's something that you talk about in your book. There's another book I read yeah. called Negotiation Genius. And the only quote I remember is be quiet or you'll pay. Wait a questions. minute. What do you, what is that? Is it, were you reading other negotiation books? You cheating on me? That was actually the first one I read. And then I found yours and was like, this is awesome. But the silent, uh, the silence piece is, is really difficult. So whenever somebody's talking and you yeah. have to allow that silence, how long do you let go by? And what advice do you have for people to just get comfortable marinating in that silence? Well, it's difficult until you realize how effective it could be. As soon as you discover that it's a ridiculously effective thing to do, then you're going to get real comfortable with it. <laughs> so it's, it's a tactic and we call it an effective pause. And there's a reason why we call it an effective pause because it's effective. I mean, it's a great name for it. So like any other tactic, you get comfortable with it by trying it out. Some people find silence excruciating. They feel like they're going to burst into flame if they shut up. They feel like they're going to lose control if they shut up. So a lot of control-oriented negotiators can't shut their mouth because they feel like if they're not talking, they're out of control. That's why I'm going to let them feel in control early on just to get them to stop talking. But the way you get comfortable with it, you try it a couple of times. You look at the other person and you count thousands to yourself. My son is the director of operations of the company. His name is Brandon. He's a brilliant negotiator. He's actually an uncredited co-author of the book. He says, count one 1,000 to yourself. He says he almost never gets past three before the other side breaks down and starts talking. I love that. And you mentioned there's different types of negotiators. What are the different types of negotiators that you cover in your book? All right. So there's, uh, it's from the caveman days. The caveman that survived fight, flight, and make friends. Like when we, in the old caveman days, before we had mountain bikes to get away from saber-toothed <laughs> tigers, you know, when we had to run, if we saw something that threatened us in prehistoric times, we either fought it, we ran from it, or we made friends with it. Those are the three types that survived. We're in the lineage of one of those three types. And uh, there's a way to test for that. It's called the Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument. It's a blah, blah, blah explanation. But we've tested a lot of people, and our colleagues at Harvard are in line with this, which is where I first learned it. We believe the world splits into thirds. Everybody on the planet is one of these three types and the world splits evenly into thirds. So what should scare people is two out of three people are not your type. 
So if you treat them the way you want to be treated, you're missing. You're missing the mark because they're not you. They're a different type than you. And that type mismatch comes up most in impasse, like when we misunderstand each other. Like the fight type is a very direct and honest person. We're really blunt. We're hard to deal with. I, that's my natural type. I once had a colleague within the FBI when I was being myself, my natural self, not my charming self, but my natural Which self. Which one are you being right now? <laughs> I, th- I think I'm being charming, I, you know, but I'll leave that to you. <laughs> I think the charming self is definitely in full force. All right. Very <laughs> the good. podcast very voice. Good. I get the late night FM DJ podcast. That's right. I forgot about that. All right. Yeah. But when I'm being my natural assertive type, my colleague said dealing with you is like getting hit in the face with a brick. So that's counterproductive. It doesn't help. The make friends type, the accommodator. I mean, we love dealing with these people. I mean, they smile. They smile easily. They're very relationship oriented. And there's a great tactical advantage to that because I once heard some data that you're six times more likely to make a deal with somebody you like. And the relationship-oriented people make lots of deals. Then the flight type, that's the analyst type. I mean, these people are very, very analytical. They see fighting as very inefficient use of time. Makes more sense to them to get away from a fight than engage in. You know, and they seem kind of distant. The very analytical people are just cold and they're distant. They don't mean to be cold and they don't think of themselves as cold, but because they're so focused on being analytical, they come off that way. And these types have a tendency to mismatch occasionally, misunderstand each other. So it's probably easy to identify if somebody is like you, but how do you identify if somebody's like one of the other two? And then what's the best way to interact with those people? Well, that's a great question. Now, what do you do, right? So we teach nine negotiation skills. And what we used to do when we'd poll these people who learned all the skills, we'd say, which skills do you want to have used with you so you can make a great deal with your counterpart? What do you want to see come from somebody else so you trust them and you make a good deal with them? All three types like what we call labels, which is just sort of an exploratory observational approach, verbal observation. And I'd say something to you like, Sounds like you've been thinking about this for a long time. All three types like to be heard out in that message. They like it better than being asked questions. At some point in time, you're going to want to ask questions, but this is actually a better way to get information out of people than questions. Then, depending upon whether somebody's really assertive, an assertive type loves to be asked what and how. Accommodators need to be asked what and how because they'll never think about it. And analysts... Don't like to be asked anything (laughs) because they're trying to hold all their cards to themselves. So the labels, again, going back to analysts, it's a great way to draw them out. And I love in your book how you have lots of different ways to ask questions using what and how. And I personally found that very useful. But you mentioned that a lot of people will use the word why. Now, I'm going to use the word why. Why shouldn't we use why? Yeah, how dare you? (laughs) All right. So why makes people defensive? Again, I'll I'll refer to my son Brandon's philosophy on this. He thinks it's because everybody on the planet, when we were two years old, if we knocked something off the table, the nearest adult in the room would come over and say, why did you do that? And we got conditioned from when we were tiny that when somebody was asking us why, that we made a mistake and we're in trouble. And we've seen people react negatively to why everywhere, in the Middle East, in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia. You know, every culture has a word for why. And you might generally want to know why, but when you think somebody's wrong, you will always ask them why. And people are just used to that. So you got to get out of the why. A real simple hack for that instead of saying, you know, why'd you do that? You can say, what made you do that? And people will give you a much better answer when you change your whys to what's. And can you give an example of using the question, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to do that? <laughs> how is that? <laughs> yeah, how am I supposed to do that is a world champion's way of saying no. I mean, it is, it is so effective and it works on so many levels. The funny part about it is that, you know, that's the story. It's the first part of the book when I was negotiating in a practice negotiation with Bob Manukin, the head of the program on negotiation at Harvard. And Bob's a cool dude. 
and he's brilliant. And he's got a great book out there called Beyond Winning. And the second chapter of that book is the best chapter on empathy ever written. Everybody should his book. That. Bob. Yeah, Bob Mnookin. You know, that's the story at the very beginning of the book. How are you, how am I supposed to do that on, on Bob in that interaction? And it is so effective that some people, that's the only thing they learn. Like we get people who are real good, you know, they read the first 10 pages and they got a negotiation skill you can use, you understand it, and they go out and they do so good with it, they don't even read the rest of the book. And then they come back and they say, I should work for you. You know, I'm killing it. I'm making all these deals. And it's just insane how effective that is in all circumstances. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think that the word no. Well, first of all, there's another point I want to get to with the word no, because you're supposed to get somebody to say no as quickly as possible. But if you yourself want to say no, like someone says like, oh, say we're negotiating a car and the car salesman's like, well, it, ha- it has to be this dollar figure for this reason. And then instead of just saying no, you can say, well, well how am I supposed to do that? Yeah. And, and then what I'll do is also I will feed back to that car salesperson their reasons why I should pay the amount. You know, that's the way I bought the my salsa red pearl Toyota SUV. And this, that story's in the book. Yeah. And I was in love with it. It was a beautiful color and it was the only one I could find. So instead of letting the salesman say that to me, I said, look, I'm in love with it. It's a beautiful color. And it's the only one I can find. And it's worth more than what you're asking for. And then I'd say, how am I supposed to do that? And he would just blink because I just took away all his reasons. He didn't have anything left. And more people have gotten great deals on vehicles. You know, first you got to say their reasons. And it leaves them with nowhere to go. And then when you say, how am I supposed to do that? What they do is they counteroffer with a lower price. It's crazy. <laughs> and what if they say, I don't know? Well, all right. So what they typically, the worst answer you can possibly get is because you have to. Or that's on you. Or if you want to deal, you're going to have to do that. And that happens rarely, but it happens. And what people typically say, you know, I use this, I use this a hundred times and it worked 99 times, but then one time it failed. And my answer to them is no, it didn't fail. Your job as a negotiator is actually to keep saying that until the other side says, cause you have to, because what you've done now is you push them to their extreme limit, which is your job without them getting crazy and calling you names or slamming their hands down on the table and walking out. If somebody says to you, because you have to, they just said, look, you push me to my limit. I can't go any farther. I'm still willing to talk. Let's talk about other stuff. So every now and then somebody does it, uh, get pushed to the limit and draw the line. And you're still talking. That's your job. Yeah. And then it seems like if you're arguing price or whatever the object is you're arguing, you can put that to the side and then talk about something else that would make it a good situation to make it a good deal. Exactly. I mean, I can take almost any price in any deal and make it either a great deal or a horrible deal. Price is only one term. Doesn't matter what the negotiation is. It's only one term. And, you know, how are you going to get the money? How's it going to be paid? How often is it going to be paid? When is it going to be paid? I mean, there's a million things that can make a price a good deal or a bad deal. And I want to get to the getting to know quickly, because that was something that I found really interesting. A lot of times we're asking people questions to get them to say yes. But in your book, the point is to get them to say no as quickly as possible. So can you explain that? Yeah, when people say yes, they're worried about what they commit themselves to. I mean, you can't say yes to anything without feeling like you're being led into a trap. You know, would you would you like to make more money? I mean, that's a trap. Would you like to get a better deal on this car? That's a trap. Is it possible that this might work out for you? That's a trap. Every one of those is a trap. And so even if you say yes, you're holding back information and you're concerned and you're distracted, which means you're not listening. Now, the crazy thing is people go on at length after they've said no, because they don't feel like they've made a commitment. So I might have a deal for you. And I and I would say, are you against doing this? You're immediately going to say, no, I'm not against doing it. But what I need is this, this and this. You will talk really freely with me about what you need because you don't feel like you made any kind of a commitment. So you can give me this information. You give it to me. You just don't want to make a commitment. So people feel protected and safe when they say no, which is why people say it all the time. So we just take the approach, get them to say no and then find out where the real deal is. 
Okay, so we've covered a few different things. Number one is trying to hear out what the other person wants with tactical empathy. Number two is trying to figure out what type of negotiator this person is, what how they communicate and how you should communicate with them. And then we talked about the type of questions to ask, saying what and how instead of why. And then we just talked about getting them to know. So if somebody wants to go tomorrow to their boss and ask for a raise, like, can you walk us through what that would look like? That way somebody, maybe somebody wants to go do that tomorrow. Absolutely. And let's reboot our thinking here a little bit. Okay. Because first of all, let's think about what, how the boss sees this. Bosses see employees as, hold on, let me, I'll decline that. There we go. Sorry about that. That's okay. All right. So, Employees only go in to see their boss when they want something. You know, that makes them self-centered. So you, you got to realize that when you go in and asking for more, you go, you don't only go into your, who goes into their boss saying, boss, what can I do for you today? <laughs> so bosses are conditioned to have their backup when you walk in and they're going to expect you to ask for more money. So negotiate a great deal, negotiate a success package and your salary will follow. Don't focus on salary, focus on your success. Uh, the best advice that I ever heard in this regard, a, a close friend of mine, his name is uh, Tom McCabe. Tom is the head of U.S. for the Development Bank of Singapore. So this is an international bank, and Tom is a, the head of the entire operation for the United States. Now, Tom and I are from the same small town in Iowa. Tom didn't get there by having a family, friends, help him on an alumni network, put him in position his undergraduate degrees from his tiny school in Missouri, so he didn't have a great degree. What he did to negotiate his success is every job and every job review, he's always said, how can I be guaranteed? Understand now this starts with the word how, not I want. How can I be guaranteed to be involved in projects that are critical to our strategic success? Now that's a game-changing question. Because instead of you asking for me, you're asking for us. And you want to be involved in projects that are critical to everybody's future. So what your boss hears from that is your boss really hears how you're going to make them more money. How can I make you more money? How can I make you more successful? So the mere fact that you've asked, you're now different than anybody else that has walked in that door. Because you're looking out for your boss, not just yourself. You're looking out for the whole company. You're looking out for the team. You're a team player with that question. Now, let's say you don't get any of those projects, but you're now on your boss's radar as being somebody that are gonna, is going to make the boss look good. If you do get the projects, you now got visibility with the highest levels of the company because you're on a critical project, the one that the big shots are all worried about. So you have the opportunity to look like a superstar to the people that are really important. Now this puts you in an upward spiral where you're going to be successful in a company as a valued asset that they want to take care of or lose. And my friend Tom is a great case in point. Now, every job hasn't been perfect for him. He had jobs that didn't work out. That's going to happen. You can't make every deal. What you need to do is think about what's my where's my success? How do I negotiate a success package? And then as a result, I'm end up making a lot of money. And believe me, Tom is very well paid. Go Tom. So what if you're a boss, like you, you, you tell all these ways that you're going to bring value to the company and you've, you've delivered on that. And now you're with your boss and they're like, well, how much, how much do you want? Picking that number can be really intimidating for a lot of people. And with a lot of things like what I do, like with sponsorship or speaking or whatever, you have to figure out how much you're going to anger at. And that can be really intimidating for people because you don't want to offend the person by anchoring high. And there's all these different strategies I've read about anchoring super high or like just being honest. So what do you recommend? I don't like high anchoring at all. High anchoring makes deals go away. <laughs> the data that's out there, it's a real big difference between me and, and my academic colleagues who have written books. <laughs> and they won't argue with me publicly on it. I, I've gotten feedback informally from a lot of them that they disagree with me on this, but they can't argue why they, you know, because their data is based on pretend negotiations that they conducted in their classes. Mm -hmm. 
But the real world negotiators know that high anchoring makes deals go away. You'll blow a deal with a number that's too high that you should have made. And that stuff like that bothers me. I want to make every deal. And I know that, that price is only one term. So I'm going to get a rough idea of a range that I'm going to be comfortable with. And I'm going to have a really good idea of what I want in addition to that. And also, I'm going to try to dig for stuff that they could give me that I might not think about. In a job, it could be a title. Really, what you want in a job is you want assignments that are going to lead to your success. And that doesn't cost your company any money at all. Plus, it gives you phenomenal exposure. So I'm looking for exposure. I'm looking for long-term value. So this gets us back to the number. Get an idea of a number. Now you got to negotiate your way into this, into the number. Before we throw a number, we always tell people our number is going to be ridiculous. If it's higher, if it's low, you know, if, if you call us up and ask how much it costs to get black swan training, then I'm, my answer to you is a lot. <laughs> more than you can pay, more than is in your budget. You know, this is, this is emotional anchoring. I let them think about a number first. And whatever number they come up with, it's going to be more extreme than what I'm planning anyway. And then I'm, then I'm going to tease it out of them where they're coming from. I mean, I'm going to say, sounds like you've given this a lot of thought. Sounds like you've done some research. These are labels. These are labels that are designed to start to get a number out of you. Frequently, if I can't get a specific number out of people, I'll say, look, so you, you must have a range in mind. If I've poked and prodded and prompted them, I'm going to ask them for a range. I'm going to ask them what's at stake. I'm going to ask them, if we don't make a deal, what are you going to lose? What's at risk to you? I mean, these are all value establishing techniques. What I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to establish value. And then losing value is the strongest decision-making motivator out there. It's so strong that Daniel Kahneman got a Nobel Prize in behavioral economics because loss stings twice as much as gain. So if I get you thinking about what you're going to lose if we don't make a deal, that's a strategic advantage to me. Also, I need to know in advance whether or not you're going to make a deal with me at all. If I start to ask these kind of questions... You may not plan on making a deal with me. A lot of people call my company asking us for training just because they want a quote. They're not going to use this. They just need the quote for their internal structure. You know, they, get, they got a favorite vendor. They need to get two competing quotes and then give, give a reason why they're going with their favorite vendor. I also want to keep myself out of that position because I'm not giving out numbers if we're not going to get the deal. So if they can't talk to me about value, they're not going to give us a deal. So quoting a number before you know what the value is, you know, to me, it's like I got to give the price of a meal in a restaurant before I know you're gonna, what you're going to order. You know, how, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I really liked about everything you just said, too, is they're coming to you saying how much and then you're not giving that away that information. You're trying to see how much they're willing to spend first. And that's something and, that and also the value, though, too. I mean, this value is an overused word so much that people don't even know what it means anymore. But I, I want a real feel for what's at stake for you. I mean, why me? Why am I valuable? You know, because I'm not looking to take advantage of you. I'm looking to make a great deal with you. I'm looking to have a long-term relationship with you. You know, I want us to be happy 10 years from now that we know each other. So because that's where I'm coming from, I really want to make a great deal. I want to know what's at stake here. I want to know what the value is. And then once we've made the deal, my plan is to over-deliver anyway. You know, my goal, no matter what, if you hire me for a million dollars, I'm going to want you to feel like you got $100 million out of me. And I'm going to want you to get that $100 million so that one way or another, you know, what you invest in me is cheap. So if you're talking to these people and you've said, this is the value I'm going to deliver, all these things... What if they're still not giving you a number? Because I actually try to do this a lot because I work with companies all different sizes and I really want to be fair, but it's also about the value that I bring. But I want them to give me the number before I give them a number. So how do you get that number out? So when you're having trouble getting a number out of somebody, how often do you end up making that deal? Most of the time. Because I end really, up, most of the time. Because I end, up, I end up throwing out a number and then the number, I say, well, this is pretty much what everybody else is paying, which is true. But I also want to see where they're at. 
because some of them it's the number is too high for them and they they claim they don't have the budget which sometimes is true and sometimes isn't true sometimes they just don't want to give it to me right well exactly now but now i'd start asking all right so if we can't make this deal you know what else can you throw on the table like one of my favorite deals of all time i spoke for free to a, a conference in boston probably about three years ago so just because they didn't have money for a speaker's fee they had money for travel and they had money for books because that was a whole separate proposition. So we packaged in 300 books. Now, this is a great book sale. Now, we started talking and we had almost no video of me talking at the time. They could shoot a video and they could give me the video for nothing. And they did a great job. They shot a great video, which has been it's on our YouTube channel. It's been shown a whole bunch of times. But the real kicker there was they were the local chapter, National Contracts Management Association. And a person that was trying to get me in said, you know, well, we'll recommend you to national. Now, I've heard that before in a recommendation for to hope to get a deal. Hope is not a strategy. So that's going nowhere. But there is a relationship with national. So I said, how many people are in a national organization? Oh, well, they're, you know, they're about 20,000 people. Interesting. How do they communicate with these 20,000 people? They got a newsletter that goes out. They got a magazine. Oh, they got a publication they put out on a regular basis. Now we're talking because they got a publication, they got to put articles in. So I said, here's what we do. We do a joint article. You interview me, so we both get credit. We put it in the national publication. You get me on the cover of the national publication. I get exposure to 22,000 people. National needs to put info in the article. Plus, this is a way for them to get a speaker for local chapter for nothing. So no money changes hands anywhere along the way. We make a great deal. And the collaboration ended up giving me a lot of great ideas for more negotiation strategy. So, you know, what besides price can we talk about? You know, what kind of media have you got? What kind of have you, have you got a publication? Have you got a newsletter? What have you got? And usually when you start brainstorming with people, they can come up with something you never thought of. I like that. So what about when it's not about money or value or like a job? What if it's with your own kids? Like you mentioned your son is a big part of your business. So what was that like for him growing up and for you whenever he's trying to negotiate his way to get his way? Yeah, well, I mean, a kid got good early. I mean, he started <laughs> using, I mean, there's this one approach that we, we have, which is calling out all the negatives that the other side might call you. It's not denying them, it's calling them out. He started using that to get out of trouble when he was in high school. I mean, the, the amount of scrapes that he got himself out of, and then later on in his 20s to get, him, get himself out of, he got a speeding ticket that was almost felony speeding. He faced jail time over it. He didn't do a day. They didn't even give him probation. They made him go to the two-day driver school when, when he stood in front of the judge when he was facing jail time. So he got good at this stuff really early with everybody else. Now, between he and I, I mean, we use it on each other all the time. And it's really more where you're coming from. I mean, if you're genuinely trying to hear the other side out and you're genuinely trying to make a good deal, then you're going to figure it out and you're going to give the other side some latitude and you're going to want to open up to them. And that's where we're coming from. And we, we use this stuff with each other all the time. So how would you negotiate your way out of a speeding ticket? Sir, you've been you've been going 15 over the speed limit. I'm going to have to give you a ticket. With the police officer or the judge? Who are we talking <laughs> I guess that matters. Okay, well, for most people, it's a police officer, right? They've been pulled over, their hands are shaking, and they're getting their license and registration out, and they're like, crap. Man, it's, it's easy to get out of. That's the easiest thing in the world to get out of. Nobody wants to do it, though. I did uh, uh, Money-ish is uh, an internet online platform uh, that's a subsidiary of Dow Jones Media. And they did some interviews with me, and one of them was how to get out of a speeding ticket. The, the interviews are online. You know, how to get out of a bad tender date, how to get out of a speeding <laughs> ticket, how to, you know, there's a bunch of them. It's, it's actually, it's a lot of fun. How to negotiate with your kids. Lot, those videos are fun. So they said, how do you get out of a speeding ticket? Now, do I need to bleep myself? Because I'm going to use some nope. profanity here. All right. All right. So it's a real simple one. A police officer walks up to you and you say, officer, I'm an asshole. <laughs> Call out the negatives. <laughs> you call out the negatives. What? Because what it is, is calling out what's in the other guy's head. And if police officers think harshly. 
I mean, they're not going to walk up to you with warm and fuzzy thoughts because they can't be warm and fuzzy towards you and give you a ticket. So police officers are going to look at you and they're going to be shocked. I mean, shocked. You will watch the look on their face change. They will not know what to do with themselves. And on a frequent and regular basis, if I ever get stopped, when I walk up, it's no excuses. It's what some people call falling a sword hard. If that's all I got to do to get out of a ticket, I'm fine with it. And believe me, that works. Now, I will tell you that somebody once posted on Facebook and said, I tried this and it didn't work. What they put on Facebook was they said a police officer walked up to my car and they asked me if I knew why they stopped me. And I looked at him and I said, because Chris Voss is an asshole and they gave him a ticket anyway. <laughs> well, that's not going to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> boom, boom. That guy actually put that out there, though. I thought it was pretty funny. That is funny. So, okay, well, how do you know if someone's lying? Like, I posted online on my social media earlier, like, okay, I'm, I'm interviewing this really awesome negotiator. What do you want me to ask? And a lot of people said, how can you tell if the other side is lying? Okay, so let's flip that on its head, too. Let's talk about how a polygraph works. What you don't need to know is how they're lying. You need to know how they're telling the truth. They put Somebody puts you on a polygraph. And a polygraph operator is going to ask you a series of control questions. What's your name? What day is it? What did you have for breakfast? What color is your car? Control questions. They're laying down a line of what you look like when you're telling the truth. Now, all I need to know is if you do anything other than that, you're not telling me the truth anymore. I just need to know the one way you tell the truth. Everybody, if you tell the truth, you tell the truth one way. Now, if you don't tell the truth at all when you ask those control questions, you're going to be all over the place. You're going to be given a different kind of answer every single time because you're deceiving all the time. That's another method. A polygraph operator picks that up and says you're deceiving all the time because there's no one way you tell truth. Now, why do you want to go after the one way you tell truth? Because you probably lie seven ways. Like there's this really funny video that you can go online and Google. If you, if you look up Jimmy Kimmel Lie Witness News, they went out in California on Super Tuesday a couple of years ago. Everybody thinks Super Tuesday is a big voting day that California is usually in, but there's two Super Tuesdays, and one of them California is not a part of. So Kimmel sent his people out there and started interviewing people on the streets of Los Angeles saying, hey, it's Super Tuesday. Did you vote today? It was Super Tuesday, but not for California. And people would look at the ground and look to the left and say, yeah, I voted. And then they'd say, well, what was it like at the polling places? And they'd look up and to the right, and they'd say, well, it was really crowded. Point being, each person lied about four or five different ways. That's too much to keep up with. Just keep up with what they look like when they're telling the truth, and then it gets a lot easier. So if you're in negotiation with somebody, you start asking them questions where you know they're going to tell the truth. Like, oh, like how many kids do you have? Well, hopefully they're telling the truth. Um, yeah. And then you start looking for behaviors that is different in their body language to see, is this different from their homeostasis when they were telling the truth? Yeah. And, and so then what you do now, that's a great question. What do I do now if they do something I'm not comfortable with? Well, that, that gets us back to this tool that I talked about earlier called the label. And I'll probably say something like, look, you know, I know you said this was going to happen, but seems like something's bothering you. Seems like there's something in the back of your mind that, it seems that you're like, about. Yeah. Seems yeah. And what happens is most people lie not maliciously, but because they're scared to tell you about problems. Or they don't know how things are gonna work out, or they really just don't know. I mean, that's probably ninety percent of the lies that are out there are people just afraid because they don't know how to tell you the truth. So instead of going, aha, I saw you look left when you did that. <laughs> You know, it's true that something's bothering you. So I want to say, hey, look, it seems like something's bothering you. That's a game changer. On top of that, if you're lying on purpose, now you're really going to get nervous because you think I got ESP and you're picking up on it and you're more likely to come clean anyway. It's, it ain't hard to figure out that somebody's lying. The hard part is to get them to tell you the truth. Man, it would be so hard to be your kid. <laughs> <laughs> just thinking about <laughs> kids lying to their, yeah, like trying to get away with, I was, I'm a terrible liar. I didn't really get away with stuff very well when I tried to lie to my parents. Yeah. So figuring out when people are lying. And then, like you said, sometimes it's not bad intentioned 
and they'll just say, oh yeah, whatever. And then you go away and then you send them an email and then you never hear back. So there's a really, I really love the email advice that you have in your book. So how can you get somebody to respond to an email after they've said, oh yeah, sure. And then you never hear from them again. In the first place, they said, oh yeah, sure. Because you were yes addicted. I mean, you're just trying to get them to say yes. I mean, the first thing we got to do is we got to get you out of your yes addiction. So that's the first problem. You should be asking questions where the answer is no instead of yes. But if you've got somebody who's not getting back to you, then you got to ask them a no question. And you send it to in an email, one-line email or one-line text, which is going to be, have you given up on this project? Or have you given up on whatever it is that you were talking about? Now, you've got to send it out word for word exactly like that and nothing more. I mean, this is one. Some people have screwed this up by changing the wording, by adding stuff. I had one guy that sent out, uh, have you given up on doing business with me? And the very next line was, because I haven't. Uh. You know, that blew the first question. Or I was at a conference probably about six, seven months ago. This young lady came up to me and she said, I sent out a text message, have you given up on this project? And it didn't work because they didn't answer. And I said, really? That never happens. But tell me word for word, what did you send? And she said, yeah, well, I changed it. And instead of saying, have you given up? I said, should we give up on having lunch together to talk about the project? Mm. Now, you know, that she screwed everything up because she took some of her ideas and she blended them in with some of my ideas. She said, well, you seems really accusatory. So I wanted to say we instead of you. And I, well, that was one of the most important words. So. I mean, that works. It, wor- it works magic. You send that one-line text or one-line email, sit by your phone or sit by your computer because you're going to get an answer in about five minutes. How did you figure out how to word that question in, in such an exact way? So we w- were exploring the idea of no-oriented questions probably, I think, back in 2012. And we weren't using them quite this aggressively. And one of the students in a class at Georgetown uh, worked for a Republican fundraising committee. And what they did was they called people at night and asked them questions. They would ask three questions and ask for money. And like almost all sales calls, every question was to try to get a yes, get three yeses, then they're going to give you the big yes if you get the three yeses, which is such nonsense. So the first question was, would you like to see the Republicans back in the White House in November? And he switched all three of those yes questions to no. And he put for the number one question, have you given up on taking the White House back in November? And they ran the no script and the yes script side by side that night. And the no script got 23% higher donation rate. So we love the beauty of that question so much that we've been using it for massive effect ever since. Maybe you can correct me with this because I read your book back in August and I actually wrote all these notes about your book. So this might be out of context, but I have get to yes three times. First time agreement label or summarize to get to a that's right. And then a calibrated how question. So isn't that trying to get to yes as well? Yeah, you know, we probably wouldn't even we'd leave the yes stuff out entirely if we did the book over again, because people get that mixed up with getting three different yeses in a row which is this yes momentum nonsense, which is just utter, it's just utter crap. It's just really bad. You know, would you like to make more money? Would you like to have more free time? Would you like to live in a big house? Those are all three yeses in a row. Theoretically, they tie the person down. They actually call them tie downs. And then you can't do anything other than say yes to the last question because you're tied down, you're trapped. Nobody likes to be tied down and trapped. Now, what we talk about in the book is called three plus, which is getting yes to the same thing, not three different things, Mm. three times in a row. And somebody was trying to hire me as a consultant a number of years ago. And I can pretty much smell up front if somebody wants to get the consulting and then not pay. You know, say, yeah, you know, as soon as I quote my fee, which is really high, they go, "Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'll pay it. I just need your consulting now. I need it now. You know, we don't have time for me to pay you now, but I need it now. And I promise I'm going to pay you as soon as I get the consulting. Like that stinks like a ripoff to me. <laughs> so I, I said to him, OK, so you promise you're going to pay me as soon as we bill you? And the guy goes, yeah. And so that now that was a lie. And most people love yes so much that the liars only have to say it once ever. 
So I said, so let me get this straight. As soon as we send you the bill, you're going to pay it right away. And the guy looked really hard to the left, like he was shocked that he had to say yes again. And then he looked back at me and he went, yes. Now that was what my poker playing buddies would call a tell, a flinch. He was so shocked that he had to say yes to the same thing more than once that he almost melted down in front of me because people love yes so much. Nobody ever tries to break it and shake it apart. And that's why it's really effective to get yes to the same question. Boom, boom, boom. Three times in a row, because if the person is lying to you, they're going to flinch so hard on the second or third one. They're going to look like epileptics that have just gone into a fit. Awesome. Thanks for clarifying that. The last strategy that I wanted to ask you about was the mirroring strategy where you repeat. So could you talk about that? Talk about that? Yeah. Please talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I just mirrored you, did I not? Yes, you did. All right. So a mirror is ridiculously stupid in, in its simplicity. And most people are scared to do it because they just think something that simple is just not gonna work. And it's just it's not the body language mirror. It's not if you're got your hand to your chin, I put my hand to my chin. Or if you cross your ankles, I cross my ankles, whatever kind of stuff that is that people do with each other when they begin to resonate. And since people do that, then the manipulators say, all right, so just mirror their body language and they'll give you whatever they want because they feel so close to you. And again, another thing that I'm dubious of. All right. So that being said, what's a hostage negotiator's mirror? What a hostage negotiator's mirror is to repeat the last one to three words. No more, no less. And that causes like a connection in people's brains. It's actually much better than saying, what did you mean by that? Because people will clarify with different words or they'll add to it or be willing to sit in the silence until they add to it. Mirror is a really phenomenal technique to three different times with the assertives who want to talk. People mirror me all the time. They catch me with it because I love to talk. I'm going to keep going. It's a great clarification tool. If you want to know what they meant by it, but you want them to use different words, you mirror what you're trying to get them to clarify. And also in the heat of the moment, when you are stuck for anything to say, a mirror is going to buy you some time and help you get your bounce back. So if somebody wants to start practicing negotiating at home, where's a good place for them to start? It's, it, with anybody. I mean, this the great negotiation is about proactive listening. It's about hearing the other side out. And there's all these different methods are really designed to hear the other side out. Paraphrase them, summarize them, make an observation not good or bad, but an observation about what they're talking about and say stuff like, sounds like you got a lot on your mind. Sounds like you've been thinking about this for a long time. Sounds like you think I should know better, whatever it is. You start practicing this stuff in a low stakes conversations, you're going to be able to use it in a high stakes game. And with your book, so what made you decide to write the book? And then how did you negotiate the terms around your book? All right. So terms were easy. I'm all about successful collaboration. So terms were a piece of cake. We didn't have any arguments anywhere along the lines with our co-writer, Tal Ross, with my agent. I have a tendency to give people what they want because I want what I want. And I want what you can deliver. If I give you what you ask me for, then I can go after, I can get you to over deliver. You know, and I, I want your best game. I want the best you. And I'm most likely to get the best you by sticking pretty close to what you're looking for. I need the best you in every deal. So that was how we negotiated. It was real simple. And the book industry has changed somewhat since the book came out. We would probably do a few things differently. But by and large, if as long as the other side is not trying to cheat me, I'm trying to give you what you're looking for. Now, how did we decide to start writing a book? My son and I had been teaching this stuff at Georgetown University in their MBA program, business negotiation successfully. Students have been killing it. They, had, uh, they were part-time students, which means they had jobs during the day. They take the negotiation skills out during the day, and they were killing it. One girl, one young lady, I use the term girl because there are just fewer syllables there, and, I'm, and I like, you know, I'm one of those single-syllable word kind of so guys. I was so offended. I was yeah. really offended. <laughs> <laughs> but she was a Department of Defense employee, and her previous boss had promised to pay for her MBA, and a new boss came in and said, The amount of money that we're paying for your MBA, I could pay for four different undergraduates. And so we're not going to pay any more for your MBA. She had at that moment, she had $30,000 that was instantly on the line. And she said, how am I supposed to do that? 
which made him realize he was changing the terms of the deal on her. She could have said, look, you're changing the deal my previous boss made. You know, maybe you have the power to do that, but there's something inherently wrong with it. It's not a morally correct thing to do, even though you have the power. She could have laid out the entire argument. What she needed to get him to do was to realize, without accusing him, that he was changing a deal that had already been made. And even though he had the power to do that, it was just wrong to do that. And we'd coach up, say, how am I supposed to do that? And he saw, he thought, and he thought, and he said, yeah, it wouldn't really be fair for me to change it up now, would it? Which is what, you know, what you say and what they hear. You need to say something that makes them realize they're off base. So anyway, we coached a lot of people through a lot of deals like this because that's the stuff that they were dealing with every day. And when we, you know, the book is full of examples from class of people making great business deals with the stuff we taught them. So when we had everything together, we started shopping for a co-writer, started shopping for an agent and a publisher. And ultimately, everything fell into place with HarperCollins, my agent, Steve Ross, and our co-author, Tal Roth. And it's a great book. It's an awesome book and everybody should go buy it right now. I have one last question for you. It's about gender. So a lot of times there's like this stereotype that women aren't very good negotiators. I I don't want to get you in trouble by asking you if it's true, but why is that stereotype there? Is it because women tend to maybe fall into the people pleasing negotiating type or like, why is that? Well, here's what I know based on our experience. Women are better at this kind of negotiation. They pick it up faster than the men do. This is emotional intelligence-based negotiation. And we see women succeeding at a higher percentage rate that exceeds the percentage of women that we're teaching. Uh, And it took us a while to see that. So as far as bad negotiation goes, I can't completely explain all the nonsense that goes on out there because if a woman is going to engage in bad negotiation, she's not negotiating the way I want her to negotiate. And I can't take a responsibility for those outcomes. But I do know that women pick this up faster. And there are a lot of brilliant women that uh, have been doing some of it already right away. And then they find these techniques and they drop them in and and they become even more successful than they already were. So this is emotional intelligence based negotiation. And women are better at that in picking it up than men seem to be. Awesome. So people can find you by getting your book. And what about Black Swan Group? Is that for like bigger companies or if somebody wants individual coaching, can they get it there? No, we, you know, we do a lot of stuff with individuals. We're getting more and more focused on individuals these days anyway, because companies are basically a mess. Uh, 40% of the Fortune 500 are going to be gone in 10 years. They're just going to be gone. That should give you an indicator of how many companies out there are really affected. So buy the book. Never split the difference on Amazon. Amazon's the best price. I buy my copies on Amazon. I can get them cheaper from Amazon than I can from the publisher (laughs) unless I buy a hundred. But we've got a negotiation newsletter that is the gateway to everything we do. The newsletter comes out every Tuesday morning. It's short and sweet. It's got a concise article, one article. It's got links to stuff that you can access for free. And it also has training announcements because we put on training around the country and we focus on individuals more than companies. We do work with companies, too, but we're much more interested in the top performers and we find the top performers as individuals. Best way to subscribe to the newsletter is via text. We got a text to sign up function. You send the message FBI empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check make it two words. FBI empathy, all one word, lowercase send that message to the number 22828. That's 22828. You get a dialogue box back, sign up for the newsletter. It's a gateway to everything. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to come on the show. And it was really fun to get to connect with you. And I hope we can meet in person someday. And maybe I can practice with you some negotiation. (laughs) (laughs) That was a really fun interview. And I have to say that I was kind of laughing on the inside when Chris was talking about clients reaching out to the Black Swan group and trying to negotiate a fee because trying to negotiate with a negotiation company about a fee when you're not the the expert negotiator would be really interesting and also really intimidating. And speaking of intimidating, I did think about trying to do a mock negotiation situation with Chris on the podcast, but I chickened out because I was too intimidated. I hope that you guys got a lot of really good takeaways from that show. I think that there was a lot of information, so you might want to listen to it twice. 
Whenever I read his book, I took a bunch of notes that I still refer to pretty regularly. So check out Chris's book, Never Split the Difference. Make sure you share the show with your friends if you think it's interesting or it brought value to you. And I'm so thankful that you guys are here and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.